This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And so I want to give a special thank you to Aaron Clow, Grace Carter, and Andrew Clapin, who all just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello. And welcome to episode 435 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing movies where the main character is reliving the same events over and over. And this will include spoilers for the movies Groundhog Day, Palm Springs, Happy Death Day, Source Code, and Edge of Tomorrow. So just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Erin Lindsay, making her 23rd appearance on the show. She's the author of the Bloodbound series of epic fantasy novels and the Nicholas Lenoir series of paranormal detective novels, which she writes under the name E.L. Tetensor. The Silver Shooter, the latest novel in her Rose Gallagher series of historical mysteries, will be out on November 17th. So, Aaron, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. The next up, we've got Zach Chapman, making his eighth appearance on the show. His short fiction appears in Nature, Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Steampunk Universe, and Writers of the Future. And he also edited the book Time Travel Tales, which includes stories by Catherine Wells, Sean Williams, and Robert Silverberg. So, Zach, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And also joining us today is Blake J. Harris, making his seventh appearance on the show. He's the author of the nonfiction book The History of the Future, and his new documentary Console Wars, about the battle between Sega and Nintendo, is available now on CBS All Access. His latest project is a book about Larry David, creator of Curb Your Enthusiasm and co-creator of Seinfeld. So, Blake, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me back. All right, so let's start off with Aaron. So, Aaron, how big of a fan are you of the classic 1993 film Groundhog Day? I mean, it's as you say, it's a classic. I, I love it. It's one of the films that, I don't know, that just kind of etches its way into your consciousness and you never really forget it, do you? Um, it is, from what I've read, it was kind of a fraught production, but that doesn't really come across in the movie, I don't think. And it just seems like the perfect blend of a really great concept that's really well executed down to the most minute detail. And that really plays to the strengths of the cast and especially Bill Murray. Um, that, I mean, nobody sort of does the sour, cynical <laughs> character the way that, that he does and just, and the subtlety that he brings to that. But he also manages to sort of, uh, you know, shepherd those more tender, almost syrupy moments. And that juxtaposition just works so, so well. And, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I've always been a big fan of, of Harold Ramis and that whole Second City crew. Um, they've done some of my favorite films, obviously. So I just, yeah, th that one has a has a special place in my heart for sure. So when you do you know any more details about it being a fraught production? Because I don't, I don't actually know anything about the the production. I mean, I don't know obviously sort of the the details beyond the, the gossip that you sort of read. Um, but from what I gather, it was kind of the 
I guess the saddest thing about it is that it appears to have been the movie that sort of broke the back of the relationship between Bill Murray and Harold Ramis, which is a real shame because those two really collaborated so well up to that point. Um, and I think, I think Harold Ramis really understood how to work with Bill Murray in a way that maybe, um, was, was really certainly unparalleled at the time and, and largely unparalleled since. But I just, I think that there were a lot of, from what I've read, uh, artistic and philosophical differences about how to approach the film. Um, it went through a lot of rewrites. Um, and it sounds like Ramis was really left with the sort of unenviable task of juggling what the original script writer wanted versus what the studio wanted and kind of creating a marriage that adhered to some of the darker roots of the original screenplay while delivering a kind of a feel-good rom-com that was more what the studio wanted. And he tried to sort of preserve that essence while navigating the hurricane in between. <laughs> um, and Bill Murray had some apparently very strong <laughs> views on Fresh Out of the Sorbonne, as I understand it, um, which <laughs> I did not know that he was studying philosophy. Um, he really wanted to sort of play up some of those more intellectual philosophical elements of the script. And, um, and so there were these, a lot of creative tensions, I think on that, on that project, which just doesn't really come through at all <laughs> in the final product. Yeah. And maybe it's better for it in a certain way. Like maybe that tug of war produced a better product in the end, but unfortunately it does seem to have been the beginning of the end, if not the end of the end of that collaboration That's... between those, those two greats. That's really fascinating. You know, I never knew any of that. You know, I, I saw this as a kid and I've seen it many, many, many times since. Um, I felt like I probably didn't even need to rewatch it for this because I feel like I have the whole movie memorized, but I did rewatch it just anyway. Um, cause you know, my girlfriend hadn't seen it. So we watched it last night. And yeah, it's, it's so funny to hear you say that, um, that there was all that tension and everything because just how it comes across to me is just a perfect little movie where everything, you know, sort of works and, you know, it just seems like everything kind of fell into place the way it was meant to be. Uh, I mean, watching it now, I have some quibbles with it, but I just love this movie so much and it just seems like just so funny and, you know, interesting and everything. Um, yeah. So how about, um, how about Zach? Uh, what do you think about Groundhog Day? Uh, well, speaking, I'm very fascinated by, the this backstory now that i'm just now learning um because i would go as far as to say it seems like the actors are having fun with it like when you're watching it that was like one of my notes it's like well, these people genuinely seem like they're happy when they're when they're working on this and you can kind of tell when you're watching a movie when actors are miserable well i i mean they might have been in this Hmm. instance and i just it just went right over my head but i'm told bill murray is always miserable <laughs> yeah so funny thing um i watched this as a kid and i probably watched it when i was too young and i just didn't it, it just didn't stick with me i didn't really care for it um and then i rewatched it uh, for this episode and i was like this is amazing can't believe i had like thought that this was kind of an overrated movie for so long. Um, but yeah, rewatching it, I was just like, yeah, this is, it's the perfect, um, I guess type of, you know, time loop movie. It's like one that all of these are derived from. Um, and I guess we'll get into that, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. So I kind of, I'm totally going back on how I felt about it 
like five or ten years do you, ago. Do you think was it the like romance that kind of turns you off as a kid, or do you have any? Do you even remember? I think it was like a. I think it was Bill Murray's uh, character. I mean, he's not the most likable character, <laughs> but as I've grown o- older, I'm just so much more cynical about things, and I found him <laughs> while he's not... Appeals. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah, while he's not uh, the most likable character, he's really relatable, and I um, grew up in a small, quaint town, kind of like the town that he's in, and it kind of reminded me of, you know, the downtown part of New Braunfels, um, that he he's just waking up and and it's just so shitty for him. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that's what it was. Yeah, I, I guess I, I don't know if anyone is not seeing Groundhog Day, except I guess my girlfriend. So I, I guess I'll explain. So the, the premise <laughs> is that um, yeah, like Bill Murray is a grouchy weatherman named Phil Connors, and he's sent to cover the um, the Groundhog Festival in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, where. If the groundhog sees his shadow, there's going to be six more weeks of winter or whatever. And he he hates doing this and gripes about everything and then wakes up the next morning and it's the same day. And he just ends up repeating the same day, this groundhog day over and over again. And there's no way even death won't release him from it. And um, and so this the movie kind of goes from there. But how about uh, Blake? What are your kind of memories or whatever of uh, Groundhog Day? Um. Uh, I definitely saw it in theater with my family, so I'm sure that adds somewhat to my love of it. But it, it you know, it really is probably one of those. My answer to one of those questions of like, if you could take five movies to a desert island, sort of thing, like one of my all-time favorite movies. Um, and, and I'm sure we'll talk more about what makes it so good. But like in particular, there was always one scene that's really stuck with me, and and it was probably uh, it's probably a. <laughs> Like, like it stuck with me since I was a kid, and I felt like at the time it was a, it was a concept that I didn't really grasp and felt sophisticated to, or felt like it was important. Which was like uh, later in the movie, after things are going well between Phil Connors and Andy McDowell, the actress, um, and you know he sort of is redoing the day and and thinks and sort of wants to pick up where it left off without putting in the legwork to like get back to that point. I think it's around the it's with a snowball fight. Yeah, yeah. And and it's like he just wants to manufacture what he thinks it should be. Um, I, I don't know. I feel like that's always stood out to me as like whenever you have success in life and you sort of try something again, and sort of I, I feel like there's always an initial instinct to take for granted that success will happen again. And I like kind of remember that scene. It's like no, no, no. Like you have to treat every experience as like a new day and and you know earn earn your way back to getting to that point. I don't know why that scene always stuck with me, but I'm glad that it did. Yeah, so I guess just to explain, so yeah, so um, he has the this weatherman. He has a producer named Rita, um, who he's sort of developing feelings for, and he spends he goes so sort of goes through phases in the movie where he, you know, he does all this crazy stuff because there's no consequences, and he tries killing himself all these different ways, and then he kind of tries to um, manipulate a relationship with Rita by just doing the day over and over again, and just whatever works, he'll uh, sort of pursue that branch uh, of the timeline. And uh, yeah, I, I, I love that the scene you're talking about. So the, the sort of the first time, you know, he, they, it's, it's sort of late in the evening and he's manufactured all these great things to happen. And these kids start yeah. throwing snowballs at them and, and they have this like sort of wonderful, spontaneous moment. And then uh, then he kind of botches it and then he tries to do it again. And he's like, oh, you kids, I love all you kids. Are any of you up for adoption? Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, 
And, and then again, they sort of like collapse in the snow together where the first time they, they started kissing and this time she's just like visibly, uh, you know, just freaked out by, by him because he's acting so strange. Yeah. Yeah. And because she feels the inauthenticity. Yeah, exactly. That's what it is. It's about the it's, authenticity it's just, the moment. Yeah. It's just there's nothing organic or spontaneous about it that he's trying to shepherd this moment back into existence, but but quickly so he can move past it to the part that he exactly. really wants to get to. Great and point. she totally yeah. senses all of that. And the way Bill Murray plays it is amazing. Like you as an audience member can see how he's just like, he's just trying to get to the next thing. He's trying to get to the next like lying. He's trying to um, just kind of con this, this whole thing. And then she picks up on it. Yeah. I think it's he his just, delivery. It just that really all his strengths, out. this movie. He just, he just knocked all of it out of the park. Really? I think. Yeah, well, well, the, yeah. So I agree that that's a great moment, and a moment that's always stuck with me. It just gives me shivers. Still, um, is uh, at one point he's trying. To, there's this uh, homeless man in the town who dies on this mm. on this night, mm. and he tries to see if he can save him. And at one point yeah. he's in the hospital, yeah. and the man has died, and he's talking. Bill Murray is talking to the nurse, and the nurse says, "Sometimes people just die," and he says, "Not today." And that just that moment always just like yeah sends shivers down my spine. Um, so yeah, the the movie does have it does have all these different registers of being funny and being sweet and being philosophical and being you know sad and and all this stuff. Um, and from what I understand, like a lot of that. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut across you. A, a lot of that comes from a, a very deliberate approach by Harold Ramis that he was very conscious of the need to balance these sweet moments with these sour moments, um, balance the cynicism with the sort of, you know, the more philosophical. Uh, and he just seems to have, whether by accident or as I sort of said before, like a result of that tug of war seems to have managed that balance perfectly. Yeah. And so I basically feel this movie is perfect, but like, um, and we could, I feel like we could just go on for 90 minutes just talking about all the great stuff in it. But, um, since we have a limited well, amount of time. Let me ask you a question, uh, or, or you guys collectively, especially since Aaron seemed to know a bit about the making of the film, like every other movie that we watched and the idea of these time loop movies, it's, you know, usually the log line or sort of described as like the Groundhog Day version of this or Groundhog Day meets this. Mm. What was, was there never, like a version of this sort of story in a, in a well-known way, whether it's like a short story or a, a sci-fi novel or anything until Groundhog Day. Like it seems, of course, it's a wonderful conceit from a film, a first story, but it seems also yeah. one, like one that wouldn't have taken until 1990 to come up with. So is it really the OG? Yeah, exactly. Is it the OG? Yeah, I don't know. Well, actually, I, I don't know. I, I, I was not aware of anything using the same premise before this. And it's actually surprising. Um, you know, I interviewed, um, I'm blanking on his name, but he, he wrote a book about time travel, a nonfiction book about sort of the history of time travel of the concept. And it's surprising. Like, you, like I, I think there are literally no examples of somebody going back in time and changing something and coming back to the present, like things like that. I think like, you know, like H.G. Wells, the time machine, you know, like sort of kicked off that thing. But you can go back before then. There's basically no time. What we would think of in contemporary terms as, as time travel stories through all of you know human history, basically, mm -hmm. which is really weird to think about. I did watch a video where somebody mentioned a few things. Um there was short stories called Doubled and Redoubled by Malcolm, Malcolm Jameson, 1941, and 12.01 p.m. by Richard Lupoff, 1973, 
and a Japanese novel called The Girl Who Wept Through Time by Yasutaka Tsutsui, 1965, that I think was turned into an anime movie. Um, but I'd never heard of those before this. And I think most, even I think most, you know, hardcore science fiction fans, I don't know, would necessarily have ever uh, come across this prior to um, Groundhog Day. But yeah, I mean, I think you're right that we could talk about this and talk about this. But but one thing that, that I did want to say that I really appreciated, you know, we're going to talk about a lot of time loop movies. Um, and one of the things that this movie does, and the only other one that does this is Happy Death Day, which is the one that I would say is probably most explicitly riffing off of Groundhog Day. There's no attempt to explain the time loop. There's no attempt to explain how or why Phil is repeating this day. And I loved that. That's usually the kind of thing that actually really irritates me, that, that there's no sort of there's no sort of satisfying <laughs> attempt to explain why this incredible supernatural thing is happening. Um, and particularly in the context of a movie where there could have been a lot of fairly deep karmic explanations for why this is happening. Mm-hmm. And they didn't go that route. And, and I know that they talked about it and that in some of the versions of the script, um, they did attempt to, to get into the hows and the whys of it. And it was a conscious decision by the filmmakers not to address that point. And I, I think it was a brilliant choice in the end because it doesn't really matter sort of all the interesting questions that are raised by this movie and that are raised by all the movies that we're going to talk about. In the end, it kind of doesn't really matter why they're caught in the loop or how they're caught in the loop. And and I found myself actually getting even more impatient with obsessing about the loop, about the hows and whys of it, the mechanics of it. Because once you accept that premise, that's when it becomes interesting. And getting obsessed with how you ended up in this premise is actually, to me, comparatively less interesting. And so uh. the sort of human discussion of, of what happens when you end up in this loop, one of the things that Groundhog Day did so well and so deliberately was that they based the phases that Phil goes through on the five stages of grief, uh. you know, like denial and uh, anger and bargaining, et cetera, et cetera. And wow. I think that's one of the reasons that it worked so well is that you, you actually kind of believe these phases that he goes through of how he copes with absorbing the fact that he's never going to get out of this day. Well, and it just, yeah, anyway, I could go on for days. Yeah. Well, well no, but it, there is still sort of some of that karmic idea because he does eventually escape the loop when he stops being selfish and starts being um, altruistic or, or whatever. Um, I, but I feel like that's my big problem with, I mean, I, I don't ha- I guess I don't have any big problems, but that is one of the things that I, like about the other movies is that it it does it actually to me does feel like an omnipotent being saying you know you got to have like when you when you look at the solution cuz at the end he wakes up and it's the next day well then there were rules to this you know this time loop and the rule like the way he breaks out is is you know, I guess that, that, that end stage of grief and we can talk about how he does that, but it does seem like there are mechanics because there is a solution to it. And, and it's kind of, it's, you know, just this arbitrary, it could, you know, it could be considered this arbitrary thing of him having this one type of day where he's, you know, he's saved the kid and he's happy with this. He's, you know, come to, you know, this karma, karma or whatever you want to call it. Um, and I don't like, I, I prefer some of the other 
solutions because it's not just this arbitrary philosophy that some omnipotent whatever created a time loop around our main character. Yeah. Well, so, well, no, let me say it's like, I mean, that's, you know, my problem with the movie to the extent that I have one. And again, I, I love this movie, but even when, when I was a kid, I always felt that his redemption was a little bit unearned and that we spend most of the movie just watching him be a jerk to everybody. And it's hilarious. And then at the end, he kind of becomes a nice person relatively quickly. Um, and then the movie's over. And so I guess I'll just throw that out there. Um, Relatively quickly in screen time, although I think we're meant to understand yeah. that well, in terms of Phil's existence. No, but I'm saying dramatic. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean in terms of screen time, like dramatically, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah, no, I get that. But you know, can I can I throw this out there? This might sound weird, but does this feel to anybody else a little bit like a retelling of Beauty and the Beast? Hear me out. So you, you, have, <laughs> you have this guy who is just awful and he essentially has a spell cast over him. Mm. And the only way he can break the spell is to become a better person and to win the heart of, of the fair maiden. And so, yes, this is simplistic on that level, but I think that kind of intuitive resonance where we've sort of heard this story on some level before means that we don't, uh, I think I think you're absolutely right, Zach. There is there are rules to the game, and there is um, a, a sort of a clockwork behind it. But because it's such a simple clockwork, it doesn't have to be doesn't take up a lot of screen time to, or any screen time talking about it. So you don't get that's distracted kind of by the hand waving, the quantum <laughs> hand waving. You know, mm-hmm. but th- but that's kind of interesting because I think you make a really good point about spell being cast in the comparison to Beauty and the Beast. But isn't a dr- big driving force of the story of Beauty and the Beast like the rules of the spell. Like, like I feel like maybe that was just the cartoon version, but wasn't was there like say, only until I'm a certain not so day. conversant in the original, <laughs> but like, I, 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 I remember the Disney version. Like I remember feeling like he had, there was like a ticking clock throughout the movie that sort of drives it forward. And that's part of what made that work. Um, yeah. There's this flower that's wilting or something. Yeah. And then like kind of the whole yeah, point yeah, yeah. is that he, in, I guess in the same way as Groundhog Day, that like how he finally, earns it is by not trying to earn it anymore um yeah 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 i think that's what i really really liked about palm springs is that it has almost everything like karma wise and philosophy wise at least in my opinion that groundhog day has um with its characters going through these um phases but then it sciences its way out of out of the time loop. So the solution dramatically is both. Yep. So, you know, I, and and so I really I I actually prefer I won't say that I prefer that movie, but I prefer like that messaging that, you know, it's not just like some karma thing. It's like it it was pretty well handled in that movie that you know, that you have this mechanic thing, but you also have these complex character arcs happening at the same time. And the plot and the solution is, doesn't have to, doesn't have necessarily to do with the, uh, the character arc, yeah, well, you know, what, it's kind of 
free of that. Let me just explain the premise of Palm Springs because a lot of people, especially if they're in Canada, I'm sure haven't seen it. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so, so Palm, there's this wedding Way ha- up in the great white North. <laughs> so in the movie, there's this wedding happening in Palm Springs and there is a, you know, a male lead and a female lead who are both at the beginning of the movie, you know, pretty sort of rotten people or they've, you know, they've just acted like jerks a lot. And the male lead who's, um, Andy Sandberg, uh, he's been trapped in this time loop for a very long time. And, um, he uh, inadvertently leads the the female lead, um, Kristen Milioti, to this glowing cave in the hills, uh, where she also now gets trapped in the time loop. And so there's two characters, um, you know, who are both who both remember the the all their prior uh, trips through this day. And I think that this actually my my other sort of main issue with Groundhog Day that occurs to me more now watching it is that I feel like. Um, there's just something a little bit uncomfortable to me watching a romantic comedy where the woman like has really no idea what's going on and is being manipulated yeah. for like no agency at all. 85% of the movie. Um, and so I, I do think it's a, um, you know, a refinement of the formula in Palm Springs to have both of the romantic leads, you know, neither of them are so helpless and so overpowered by, by the, the circumstances that they're in. I think, though, in a way, that's that's why I always really like that scene that I mentioned with the snowballs, because that sort of maybe indicated to me that you can't, that she wasn't being manipulated, that, that he had to truly be acting a certain way. I mean, I know what you're saying, that she's unaware of the situation, but if it is an authentic growth, it, it doesn't feel like it's, which, well, I guess, are we going to talk about Palm Springs? Because that, that gets to my big central question with that movie as well, which was, uh, I didn't quite understand why the female lead was so offended when he said that he had slept with her before when at first she seemed to have no problem with that idea. Okay. Well, let's table that for a second um, and stick with the, like, do we, do we like it better when the female lead knows what's going on versus (laughs) doesn't? Um, So Aaron, Uh were you going to say something there? Um, I just, I mean, I, I, I completely see what you're saying. And and I also agree with Blake that, I mean, she does, I think to me, it's less a question of whether she needs, whether the female lead or the romantic lead, like the other romantic lead, the partner, um, needs to know or not know what's going on. Um, but they do need to have some sort of sense of agency over the situation. And I think while Rita shows some flashes of agency, uh, just because of the way that the movie is set up, there isn't a lot of time for that. Um, so she she doesn't, there aren't that many scenes in which, like there's the one scene where he tells her what's going on, for example. Um, he has one of his better uh, iterations of the day is one where he levels with her and manages to convince her based on his sort of uh, supernatural command of everything that's happening around him. You know, he knows exactly when everything's going to happen, um, which is of course common to almost all of these movies. Um, that's sort of the, the device used to convince the other character, um, the other lead character that, that this person is replaying the loop. Um, in that scene, she knows what's going on and yet she's still fairly passive. You know, she's still sort of, orienting her world around his and like, so this is really interesting what's happening to you. And why do you think it's happening to you? Um, and which I think 
to, to be fair, is probably a pretty natural reaction to the circumstances. But I guess to <laughs> me, it's not really a question of, it's not really about whether they know or they don't know. It's a question of whether they're seen to be influencing their own world or whether they seem to be in somebody else's orbit. Um, and I do think that, you know, it's a fair criticism that Rita seems to be entirely in Phil's orbit for most virtually all of the film. I guess let me quickly say the other I guess the other sort of related issue I have is that Phil has done all these horrible things. Um, you know, for example, there's there's a woman in the town who he pretends, you know, he uses his ability to gain knowledge from day to day to to convince her falsely that they went to high school together and establish this sort of false intimacy with her. And this is totally played for laughs in the movie. Um, and he, there's never any moment where he's like, oh, that was kind of a shitty thing I did when I was like a shittier person than I am now. And that maybe would have kind of deflated the humor to have to go through some like really painful uh, reckoning like that. But I think it is something worth, you know, thinking about, like, you know, that he doesn't really ever have to reflect on all the bad things he did throughout the movie. It's it's a it's a relatively painless um, growth process for him. I was going to say that Palm Springs addresses that. Um, Andy Sandberg's character is like pain matters. When you hurt people, it matters. Like things that you do, you know, you, it's like things that happen to him don't really matter I, unless it's like pain. He's like, you're, you still have to live with that. And, and so I prefer that approach. Like if you're going to make an amalgam of both of these movies, I prefer that approach because it's it's kind of hard to watch in 2020 um and not having like a a love for this movie before 2020 um uh groundhog day there are scenes especially with rita where he's just he is borderline forcing himself on her um and it just feels like really yeah and and like with you know maybe with that other lady in town I don't, for whatever reason it didn't it didn't register with me that it was as creepy as it was but especially there are like two or three scenes with Rita where you know he's using this power and he's being but he's being more aggressive and more forceful and he's like not even uh, he's not even attempting to be like I don't know uh <laughs> a good person, I guess. So, um, or to like mitigate, like the, the hurt that he might cause in this one day time loop, you know, or the damage that he might do. It just seems like Bill Murray would be the type of, like there's, there's one instance that they cut from the film where he just goes on a shooting spree or something just to see what, you know, Oh, I can do whatever I want. It doesn't matter. That's like the type of character that he seems versus Andy Sandberg is just like it's more of like a you know an internal hurt that he's going through I don't know yeah well no no I, I totally agree with all that and I, and I really um liked Palm Springs and I thought it was like I said sort of a refinement of the formula in in various ways and that's one of them is that it feels more contemporary in a lot of ways in terms of yeah that just because people don't remember um you know bad things that you did to them that doesn't make it okay um and so and i and i really see palm springs as a movie that you know almost certainly couldn't have existed without groundhog day kind of laying that ground and i think this is what's cool about genre fiction is that you can build on top of stories that have come before and push things out and you know push ideas much farther than anyone 
almost certainly could have just starting from scratch. It it also seems to have a lot of taken a lot of inspiration from Russian Doll, which I know we're not going to get into, but it feels a lot more like that movie than than Groundhog Day. I I will say that um and Blake, I don't know you, you wanted to come in before um so did you want to come in again? Because I I did have something to chip in there, but I no, go I, ahead. I go heard ahead. you raise a point. I I was just gonna say like. I, I agree with what you're saying, both of you. Um, at the same time, I think we're meant to understand that some of that realization did happen. And I agree that maybe it wasn't as explicit as it could have been. And it certainly wasn't as maybe um, hard hitting as contemporary audiences would find satisfying. But I think the, the sort of the sequence um, that uh, I can't remember who brought it up, but with the homeless man. Yeah. Um, I, I think that feels to me like the pivot point where, where Phil starts to care, even though he knows that nothing he does is going to matter when he wakes up in the morning, even though he knows it's all ultimately futile, futile and, um, and, you know, you can explore your nihilism to the ends of the, of the universe. There's this pivot point where he puts, and for whatever reason, he starts with the homeless man, um, he puts all of his energy into trying to change this outcome, which of course is of no personal interest to him. He has nothing to gain by it. And so a, a very cynical interpretation of everything he does after that, or uh, an earned cynicism, I don't think it's a wrong interpretation, but one interpretation of everything he does after that is it's to gain Rita. But another interpretation is it's just that he's come to this point of acceptance where he's going to be stuck in this loop forever. And so he's going to make it about improving the lives of the people around him. And so he does come around, I think you could argue to this place where he, he realizes that it does matter. And so, yes, he doesn't, we skip over the part where he realizes what a shitty person he's been and kind of rolls around in that for a while. We definitely do skip that. But I, I would argue that he has that, that the growth is there and it's implied perhaps more than shown, which is, you could, you could say a criticism, but I wouldn't say it's not there. That's along the lines of what I was thinking in that um, I, I'm just surprised by how much you seem uh, critical of or slightly offended by the morality aspect of it. And it does feel very 2020 to me, just in the sense that there seems to be an expectation nowadays that characters should begin the story or very early on should be good and have all the good qualities and not you know, as opposed to what the whole point of most stories, especially in 90 minutes is, is, is growth. Uh, I mean, I, I feel like all the, um, unsavory things that Phil Connors may have, that we might think are, you know, <laughs> unsavory. Andy Sandberg did those too. We just didn't see them because they skipped over that part of the story and he seems to have changed because of that. And I, and also I think that part of the reason that the film is so, um, accepted and accessible, even though there's no like, you know, narrators explaining to Phil how what's what the what the rules of this are is because it's very much just asking you the question of the audience. What would what would you do if this happened to you? And I think most people would definitely do the kinds of things he did. Actually, I would say they probably do a lot worse things. Um, so I, I'm just surprised that 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 would be like a nitpick. Well, but it is, it is like, you, it's a nitpick, as I said. I mean, like, as I overall, I love the movie. And it's just, you know, when you think about it a lot, these are the kinds of thoughts you have. 
Um, no, no, and, I get it. I guess I'm just trying to push you and others to not feel bad about enjoying things that are comedies that are not supposed to be life lessons and not and, feel like, ooh, that's that's a stalker move when it's, it, it is but, a pure comedy. But it is a stalker move, but I think I, I, but I, but I support completely what you're saying, Blake, like it's a stalker move, but I think we're supposed to know that it's a stalker move. Exactly. And and I think you've raised a great point that, you know, it's very clearly implied, um, well, and, and later in the movie outright stated in Palm Springs that Niles has done all of these things. He acknowledges that he slept with Sarah on multiple occasions and lies to her about it. And we see him manipulate her based on his, his, knowledge of past iterations into that place where they sleep together. So, I mean, they definitely both do it. And so, yes, the hand wringing is more explicit on screen. Um, and, and maybe that's what you want to see. And maybe that isn't what you want to see, but I would say that the overall where the characters end up is very similar. Yeah. And I would also say one of the only differences is that Andy Samberg has a buddy or I guess two buddies in this time loop and Phil doesn't. So, he doesn't have that confidant that he could say, I can't believe I used to behave that way. Like that would just be like, who would he even say that to? The, I, th- I feel like he does say that just through his actions. By- Punxsutawney Phil. I think <laughs> <that would> be- <laughs> no, I think we are definitely supposed to understand that he was a dick. Yes. <laughs> no, it's pretty clear by the way everyone reacted to him. <laughs> um, but yeah, is there anything else to say about Palm Springs and how it, you know, how it puts a twist on, on this formula? Um, I thought it was because I thought it was really like clever, like, like just the idea that, um, you know, like that she wakes up before he does. And so if she decides to take off, you know, she's just gone from his reality, even though like you would think like, oh, he, he can do anything. He lives the same day over and over again. Like he can never get her if she just leaves before he wakes up. I thought that was was like, oh, wow, that's such an interesting idea. And the original sin aspect, too, of her waking up with the fiancé. Like, that nothing she did yeah. in this, you know, a million times she lived this day could change the fact that she had been a terrible sister. And Yeah. I thought, I yeah. thought that was so smart. It, wait, and what you said, Dave, before about it sort of building on on what was done before, I think they did that very consciously and very successfully, Not not only in the ways that they pushed the boundaries, but it's really hard to imagine. Okay, first of all, I loved this movie. I laughed my ass off in this movie. It is exactly this sort of dark, twisted sense of humor that I really appreciate. Um, I, I had to put my mic. So, so what Dave hasn't mentioned for, for all of you. Yeah, I there, should explain the Canada joke. Otherwise, people are not going <laughs> to know. Explain the Canada joke, Dave. <laughs> oh, well, so, so this is, at least at the moment, this movie is a Hulu exclusive. And so I didn't realize when we made plans to watch it that Aaron, I guess there is no Hulu in Canada. So Aaron wouldn't be able to watch it. So when I watched it, I just took my uh, laptop on and put the video up, pointing it at the screen so she could watch it with me. Yeah, we did a Skype date um, to watch this movie, which I appreciate. Um, I had to put my microphone on mute because I was laughing too much. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. I don't know if anywhere, like some places might get Hulu, but we only get uh, certain cherry picked Hulu things that are picked up by a service called Crave. So anyways, um, they didn't pick this up, which is a shame. And, uh, and I just found it super, super funny. But one of, one of the reasons that so many of the jokes worked is because they built on the assumptions that were already hardwired into my brain because of Groundhog Day. So they subverted a lot of that humor. So, you know, those moments that we talked about before where Groundhog Day would shift into a sweeter moment, 
this this thing tees it up so that you're sure you're about to move into a sweeter moment and you're just not then something super dark and cynical happens and it's it's <laughs> super funny so i just i loved that about it but but one of the things that i also think was super clever was that it starts very much with niles in media's res like he's he's already gone through all of these iterations that we haven't seen and so that makes for some great comedy the fact that he's at a wedding, which we've all been at a wedding that we felt like we've been at a million times, <laughs> but he's actually already literally been at it a million times. And so he can kind of veer between all the ridiculous things that are happening in this wedding and, and make jokes out of them, which is funny. But then we have Sarah, who's kind of the anchor character for the audience, who's literally screaming, what the fuck? <laughs> throughout that whole first evening like you the audience member are because you have no idea what the fuck and so I just thought it was just really done so well but I I do think that it would be hard to sort of absorb that movie as well if Groundhog Day had never been I can't believe wait Dave did you do that experiment did your girlfriend see Palm Springs first no no <laughs> she hasn't seen it so. ah you blew it yeah you uh, that out. if only I could do the day over and Try it that way. <laughs> um, but I want to get Zach uh, back in here. Uh, so, Zach, what do you? Anything else about Palm Springs you want to bring up? I it, it's really funny, um, and yeah, everything what, that Aaron was saying. I guess like the only difference I that I prefer is that its ending agrees with my view on an uncaring universe, like. <laughs> That there's no laws to the universe as far as as far as like morality and that and your morality isn't going to break you out of this situation. You're going to have to do something drastic. You're going to have to like science your way out of this time loop, which is just something that I I really appreciated about it. Well, I don't know if everyone caught the the sort of mid credits scene, but um, yeah, once the credits start, we we cut back and now it's it's back inside the bubble universe and Roy, who's this other character who is also living this day over and over again, runs into Andy Samberg. And now he has no memory of any previous days. So we know that Andy Samberg escaped from this bubble universe, but I think we're also meant to take from that, that Sarah was lying about the goat thing, right? Uh, thank but, you. Because that's what I was going to ask you. The goat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, like how would, yeah. Well, what? Okay. I'm glad. I didn't realize that that's what it meant that she was lying. I would just Dave, kept thinking, I think you better well, explain about the goat. Thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Your, your well, well, so, well, well, so yeah. For people who didn't actually watch this or who missed the last scene and stuff, yeah. So, um, so, so, so the Sarah, the female lead, um, spends day after day after day studying quantum mechanics and stuff like that, and eventually figures out that they're in this kind of bubble universe and they can get out by blowing themselves up at the exact moment that the cave resets everything. Um, Which reminds me of Dark, just in parentheses. Yeah, actually, yeah. Um, it's kind of like Lost, too, actually. Um, but um, but so she tells Andy Sam she wants Andy Samberg to join her in escaping, and she tells him that she tested this on this goat, you know, that she sent it in with a bomb strapped to it, and now it's it's gone, and so uh, so it must work. And then as they're as they're approaching it, he's like, "Did you were you telling the truth about the goat?" And she's like, "It's, it's too late now. You're committed." Um, but the fact that um, that Andy Samberg is still there at the end, and actually, did, I don't know if we saw the goat or not, but but just the fact that his, he's still there indicates that she was lying, that blowing up the goat 
didn't make it disappear from this reality because blowing up him, blowing up Andy Samberg, got his consciousness out but didn't make his original right. body uh, disappear from this reality. I don't know if that made any sense at all if you haven't seen the movie, but I, we, I gave it my best shot there. We didn't talk much about Roy, which is like this character that has a vendetta against Andy Sandberg because Andy Sandberg brought him into this time loop. And so every once in a while when it just fill you know, when it's just on a whim and he and he wants to, he just mercilessly hunts Andy Sandberg down and and like murders him and tortures him. And it's so I, I like that Roy's in this movie because um, it kind of it, it's it's really super dark if you think about it, like what this character has done. And it's it allows for like a more you you wouldn't be very sympathetic for Andy Sandberg's character if he had done that. If you had done any of those really awful things like hunting and killing people um but it it allows for that in this universe you know it's like this is this is what this type of person would do if they could you know live on repeat they would just hunt people down for fun plus it's just super <laughs> and then he funny. has his own arc yeah it, it's really really funny it's played for laughs but then it has a super like awesome character arc that character has a great arc um so yeah I, and you know what else it's, it's a really good movie <laughs> what else is like especially fun coincidence i don't know if this is just my brain being weird but so that character roy is played by jk simmons and who's perhaps known to to many people as the guy from the farmer's insurance commercials <laughs> which i find funny because this is basically the farmer's insurance guy playing that what insurance company is it that has the guy who's playing the 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 hazard that always T-bones you at the oh, intersection. Yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, which He's is funny because... Which is a funny ad sequence, but this is basically him playing that. So, you know, our two leads are merrily going about their business, and then Roy shows up. He's like, I am chaos, and here's my shotgun. <laughs> And it's just, I love that he's the farmer's insurance guy. For whatever reason, that just puts it over the top for funny for me. Well, I was going to say that's funny because the guy who's uh, who plays chaos, which is Dean Winters, the actor... Mm -hmm. Um, I always know him from Oz, which is how I still know J.K. Simmons, <laughs> which is like the opposite of his farmer's insurance commercial guy. Did you guys ever watch Oz? He was, he was uh, the Aryan leader, J.K. Simmons, and sort of okay. famously uh, raped the main character and took a deuce on him. So, okay. uh, but you know, he did it with great acting, <laughs> as he always does. It's just funny that like he's now known as like this guy for prudence and reliability. <laughs> Whereas at least uh, Dean Winters did sort of play that like chaos role on Oz, so I feel like. <laughs> All right. Well, why don't we move on to the next movie on the list? Because uh, uh, I want to talk about Happy Death Day. So um, this is a uh, there's a uh, you know awful um, college female college student in a sorority, and she wakes up after a night of partying. Um, and uh, it's her birthday and she gets murdered by a uh, sort of a knife wielding killer wearing the school mascot mask and then wakes up again and it's the same morning. And, and so she gets murdered every day and has to try to figure out who's doing it so she can um, prevent herself from being murdered. 
And it's actually all the movies that we watched for this are in the 90s on uh, Rotten Tomatoes, except for this one, which is 71. But I found this pretty enjoyable. I mean, I, I definitely had some issues with it, but uh, I, I thought it was fun. I thought it delivered exactly what it promises um, from the trailer, which is, you know, Groundhog Day with, you know, murder. Uh, so um, <laughs> I have a note that's really similar to what you just said, but it says never delivers any more than its premise. Groundhog Day plus Slasher. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So that's, yeah. Uh, why don't we pick that up? So um, does everyone, does anyone disagree with that this movie delivers less than or more than it promises? Uh, I mean, it's just not bloody. It, it's like, it's, a, I, I, I was kind of excited about this because there were a lot of Austin critics that were giving this some pretty good praise. And so this was the one that I was most excited to watch. And um, it, I'm being cri- super critical now just because I have my hopes up. But the the dialogue is pretty bad. And um, the character is not very smart. It takes her a, a long time uh, dr- dramatically to realize what's going on. Whereas all of these other movies, these characters they understand very quickly what's happening to them. Um, uh, and... I'm going to disagree with you when we get to source code, but we'll... Uh... Oh, oh, for... <laughs> yeah, sorry. I for- forgot about that one. Now, yeah, I do prefer this to source code. Um, but, um, and usually, like, the some of the other movies have unlikable protagonists, but at least with um, Bill Murray, like, it's, he's being funny. Like, it's, it's fun to watch him be an asshole. It's not really fun to watch her be an asshole. Um, and I agree. And, and, or, or someone will be like really, yeah, yeah. Right. It's just, but, but right. So you're wanting to see her get killed or you're wanting to see other people get killed. But this movie has like no claws. Uh, I, I'm not sure it might be PG 13. There's like no blood. The kills are just, really boring if you're into slashers it doesn't do anything interesting with the slasher aspect and it doesn't necessarily do anything interesting with the groundhog's day aspect it's just a marriage of both and mediocre all the way through yeah i think just to pick up on what you're saying i agree with that i i don't know that it needed to lean for my sensibilities anyway um, I think it would have been interesting to see like a true horror movie uh, done to Groundhog Day, but this was clearly pitching more of a sort of blend of comedy and horror. And I just wanted more Cabin in the Woods. Yes. I wanted to see more of that. So so they, I think one thing they did well was they used sort of the tropes and the expectations of Groundhog Day to fairly good effect, but they didn't use the tropes and expectations of horror movies to very good effect. <laughs> Like, I think you could have really subverted them in ways. I mean, Cabin in the Woods is just, I don't know. I love that movie so much. Um, and maybe that makes me biased. But I really, like, that's a genuinely funny horror movie to me. Um, it has some uproariously funny scenes. And I think there were there were moments, like flashes, where the protagonist, where Tree was likable or funny, but they were few and far between. Um, and mostly you're just like, this is a horrible sorority chick who's the stereotype of horrible <laughs> sorority chicks. And I'm just quite keen on seeing her die. 
There's just, she has no redeeming qualities and she kind of doesn't really earn any redeeming qualities either. So, you know, she, to, to the degree that she shows any growth, she becomes more sympathetic to the people around her who she dismissed as losers early on. And she becomes less sympathetic to the people who were her sort of go-to friends or sorority sisters or whatever. And so there's, there's some movement, but I don't know that I would call it growth necessarily. And, and I think that's kind of where they miss the mark. Like if it had been darker or funnier or ideally both, but it just kind of treaded water for me. I liked it, but I, I just think it could have been better. I, I, I don't know that it quite got where it was painting. I guess I'll say like one thing I liked about it was that they introduced this idea that she doesn't have infinite lives, basically, right? That like every time she wakes up having been murdered, good point. Her yeah. body is sort of deteriorator deteriorating and has all this internal, you know, inexplicable internal scar tissue and all this stuff. And I thought that was a really interesting twist, and 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 put sort of a, a ticking clock on it that she, you know, she has a limited number of lives to to solve this mystery. Yeah, it's a good like point. That. But I agree with you, like, I, I, the, the done it was so obvious. It's so <laughs> obvious, like, you know it from the very start. Like, from the first scene, you're just like, oh, she's the killer. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, uh, the the whole getting injured and waking up with injuries, I, I'm not sure if this is the first one to do that, because I think that's also in Russian Doll, and I'm not sure which one came out. I think they might have come out around the same time. Okay. Yeah, I haven't seen Russian Doll, so. Um, and I thought the lead actress was great. Um, just her performance, like you know, that she plays the, you know, the the unlikable sorority girl, and then you know the scene with her dad, I thought was really well played. I mean, I thought that, um, you know, I, I thought the movie had some, you know, I wasn't sorry I watched it at all, and I won't be, and I'm not, and I'm still, I am definitely planning to watch Happy Death Day to you. So, and, and honestly, like, I don't know if this is the right moment to say it, but in terms of batches of things that I've watched for this show, I think as a sort of overall batch, I probably enjoyed this body of work more than anything that we've seen in terms of the, the highs were very high and the lows weren't very low. If I could put it that way. Like I think Mm -hmm. overall Mm -hmm. as a body of work, there's some good stuff that we're talking about today. This, This is averaging extremely high. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. On Rotten Tomatoes, I would give this this body of work a solid 90%. <laughs> well, well, so let's get to Source, because this is my, you know, I told you guys that I, I had watched Source Code a couple years ago, and I was like, I don't rem- I don't think it was that good. And then I saw it was 92% on Rotten Tomatoes, and I was like, oh, well, maybe I, I was being too hard on it. And so I went back and watched it. I just, I, I don't like this movie at all. I, I don't understand why it's 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. I, I definitely liked it the least of, of all these movies. I, I have a small theory for that, actually. Okay. Which is that, um, you know, the, I guess the, the percentage in Rotten Tomatoes is from critics, right? Like, that's the one that yeah, you're yeah. referring to. And most film critics are pretty savvy about the film industry. And the reason that I remember being able to convince my wife to see this movie was because it was like, the number one blacklist script, like script, unproduced script in the film industry for years. So it was like this haloed project. Mm. And I felt like maybe that gave it more of the benefit of the doubt or people said that this was like a genius project. Uh, I mean, I know that doesn't always work, but I feel like that, like, I don't, I, I don't know how otherwise it got 92% because it's not even one of those movies where I'm like, yeah, I can see how most people just like it. I don't, I don't feel that way. <laughs> 
Is it um it, and isn't the director also he was kind of up and coming? Yeah, it's Dunk Dunk. This was Jones. his second Duncan Jones and this was his second. He was kind of writing r- the Tales of Moon, which was pretty critically acclaimed, right? Yeah, so maybe people didn't actually watch the movie. They just based <laughs> the reviews off of what Blake is saying. I mean, let, I mean, I don't know. I, like, I had a very similar experience to you, Dave, I think. I remembered watching it, and I remembered the broad strokes of it, but I, I ultimately found this film to be unmemorable. Um, I couldn't remember any of the specifics of it. But watching it again, I, I have it's fine. Like, it doesn't, for me... Anyway, it doesn't have any huge missteps. It's entertaining enough, but it's just very much, I, I don't know, it, it's probably the most predictable, not predictable in the plot sense, but sort of, it just feels very much like what it is, which is, a, it just feels like a Hollywood movie that's kind of, in a certain sense, ticking the boxes. What I will say about this is that there were certain things on the rewatch that struck me a little bit more. And if I, if I'm going to, sort of make the link with previous panels that we've been on together. If Groundhog Day reminded me of Dragon Age and like that, you know, that I don't know if you've ever played Dragon Age, you guys, I I think Zach, you said you had Mm -hmm. um, where you, you replay the same conversations over and over. And then if you don't like the way you did it and you want the character to react differently, you just reset and do it over again. This was reminded me a lot of Assassin's Creed like there was just there was something about Desmond in the Animus that watching this the second time and I'm like he even kind of looks like Desmond. <laughs> I don't know if that was intentional, but whatever it was and and similarly I kind of had the same reaction as as I had with Assassin's Creed which is there's a lot of promise in this concept, but it's just it's just delivered in such an ultimately generic way for lack of a better way of putting it. The the concept is basically it's it's Johnny got his gun, which is like one of my favorite novels ever. You know, it's probably one of the best novels ever written. But this instead of, you know, just being a vegetable, he's going back in some kind of source code animus thing and mm-hmm. reliving to find where a bomb is planted on a train and the people and at first, you don't know this. You think he, maybe he like crash landed and it's very confusing and jarring. And it's part of the mist. I think it's supposed to be part of the mystery that's supposed to be interesting about the movie, but it kind of ultimately isn't. It's just confusing at first. And then as you're finding out, okay, this, this guy's in this vegetative state and they're using his brain to kind of body swap him back into this animus into someone who was on the train. And then he can search, he can live through that um that time uh before the bomb blew up on the train to try to find out who planted the bomb and then they can stop something that's in their timeline that's going to happen which is a, more bombs going off in Chicago um i think you know does that yeah. that's pretty much the premise but yeah. the problem is all of the like there's two villains one's a disabled scientist and one's like this proud boy with a bomb they're super undeveloped and uninteresting. Um, And Jake Gyllenhaal himself is pretty underdeveloped and uninteresting. And then the ending is very, very predictable. And the, one of the most unearned uh, endings 
I've ever seen because it's like, it's just like you just roll your eyes. It's like, oh, okay, well, he just created a new universe and everyone saw that coming. And it thinks <laughs> the, the problem with this movie is it's fine. It's a fine movie. It's good enough, but yeah, I saying. really it's like a hate. 6.57 kind of. <laughs> yeah, but I really hate when a movie thinks it's smart. And this is one of those movies that thinks it's smart. And it's just not. Like, this ending is so trash. Yeah. If it had ended 30 seconds before, it would have been a better ending, I, I think. Yeah, well, one thing is definitely not smart is Jake Gyllenhaal's character in this movie because <laughs> all he fucking has to do is go to the bomb, get the cell phone, call it, hear the ringing, and tell them whose phone <laughs> rang. Like, it should take literally, like, eight minutes. You, you you shouldn't have to redo this more than once. Like, you could do this in eight minutes. You could do this in, like... You know, you could you could do all that and then spend six and a half minutes doing whatever, you know, just like kicking back and relaxing. It's <laughs> so easy. Because I and, feel like a lot of these have like these fault, like there's things you can nip at. Like I even, we didn't talk about Groundhog Day, but I remember like at the time and people talked about like, well, why don't you just stay up all night sort of thing? Like, but you get the, you kind of get the point of it, the, the more, like the, the, the moral and concept of the story. But in this case, this just seems like a huge flaw. That you're right. That like it could be exposed. Well, and 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 they're and they're like time is of the essence. Millions of people are going to die. Could you please just go to the bomb? And he spends like sixty minutes like fucking dicking around and like arguing with him out about everything. And it's just like, what? Oh my god! Like, could you? If you just imagine these people, like, oh my god! Like, out of all the soldiers and the like that we ended up with this guy who I like, can't fucking do anything. Um. But they couldn't uh, make that interesting. Like, so here, here's my here's my interjection here. I don't disagree with what you're saying. I also think it's very realistic. And I think they tried to get into the thing about, like, could you stop fucking around and just find the bomber because it shouldn't be that hard? And he's super distracted. And he's distracted for a whole bunch of reasons. And I think that's believable. And I think it would have been a much more interesting movie if they'd got into and they kind of gesture in this direction about why he's distracted and why he can't sort of commit himself to the task. But it just, to me, it would have been much more interesting, particularly, and maybe this is kind of a bias from, you know, my, my, my previous life and the work that I do, but some of the more, the more interesting stories to me are about why soldiers don't follow their orders and what are the sort of things that your standard operating procedures or your, command tree can't really predict um, and, and the deviations that are part of human nature and, and the fact that you can have, you know, your, your fancy program, but at the end of the day, if it relies on putting a human being in there, right. he's not going to, he's not going to react in predictable ways. And all of these emotions are going to come into it that, that you, and that, so, so the, the, his handler Goodwin, she doesn't really know how to deal with it. And neither does Rutledge, who's her supervisor. And I, I just think there was a story there that they weren't telling. Instead, yeah. they were going through the motions of the you right. know, speeding train and it's all exploding and the pretty girl. And they got distracted by that part of the story, which was actually not the interesting part. No, exactly. I totally agree with you. If the if the story was like this soldier doesn't follow orders because of his because of issues with his psychology and PTSD and all that kind of stuff, that would actually be interesting. But I don't think that's what this is about at all. I think it's like all they have to set up the stupid ending that Zach alluded to and they have to set up the romantic <laughs> subplot. And that takes so much time that there's like nothing left like over. Boxes plot. Yeah. Oh, you're right. I, like, I, I think everything you described, Aaron, would have added 
depth and a different angle to this that would have been better. But as it is, I feel like the main reason, if you were to ask Jake Gyllenhaal's character why he's dicking around, he'd be like, oh, I'm just reading the script. Like, we gotta <laughs> burn time. Like, like, he, like, I'm not actually motivated by any character decisions. Like, I'm just following the orders, bro. So, so he is trying to call his dad because he finds out that he's actually dead or pretty much presumed dead. And so he's in this alternate animus timeline thing. He eventually tries to call his dad and that could have been a touching moment, but he's, he doesn't say he's, he's not like, I'm your son. He's like, I'm your son's friend. And he like, you know, he, he's sorry that y'all ended on the, the way, you know, y'all did. And, and, uh, and it's just like, man, that, why would you do that? Like, this is supposed to be dramatic, and you're making it the least dramatic it could possibly be. I, you know, I, for me, that was fine. But I just feel like, so so the backstory for why he's in this vegeta- vegetative state is that he was a helicopter pilot. And we don't really know the details, but he was saving his unit. It was all very heroic. Well, couldn't you build from that? Couldn't it be that following the orders and being told you had the ticking time bomb right, and doing right. all of this resulted in this huge fucking disaster and everyone you cared about died? And so maybe this time you're questioning your orders and you're questioning yeah. the morality of the, of the, of the script and all of the rest of like, that could have been, interesting. that's good. That's really good. That's yeah. great. I think, I think my easy fix, my big note would have been, Oh, add a second, like add the helicopter co-pilot or something. And then they're even having this conversation of like, well, we still have to follow orders. No, remember last time. And then you can actually get in some like exposition of backstory and, and have like a human. Yeah. Relationship. You're, you're saying like the, the Goodwin character is handling should have been someone he knew. Already? Oh, like, oh, no, like in the simulation with him. So they're sending two people into the simulation? Yes. And, okay. and so they're like, where were we? Like, yeah, I don't know. I, I think, or like a Westworld fake, like he's not even really in there, but there's... The, that kind of thing, uh, too. There's yeah. the sort of the guy that's supposed to be his helicopter co-pilot, but isn't really. It's part of the sim. I mean, exactly. there are just a lot of things you could have done with it that would make it more interesting. Yeah, well, this sort of gets back to my point about Groundhog Day versus um, Palm Springs, is I think these stories just tend to work better when there's more than one person who remembers things from iteration exactly. to iteration, because otherwise you can't exactly. really have character development. Um, and especially if you're going to have a romantic subplot, then it's sort of like there's always this sort of like, to me, intimacy that rings false at the end because you're like, wait, this, this the other person who doesn't remember all the previous days, this is like they've known this person for eight hours or something and they're, they're <laughs> acting like they've known each other. They've, they've gone through this intense experience together. And that sort of leads into edge of tomorrow. Cause which I love. Um, but that's sort of, sort of an issue for me with that movie as well, is that again, it's a story where the, the female lead doesn't remember the previous iterations and, and it, start, it sort of starts to stress my um, suspension of disbelief, how, you know, yeah, how the relationship develops when, when she can't literally remember any of the previous times that she's met this guy. Though, again, that made for a good ending, maybe. <laughs> like, the, it, for that final also, ending line or, or moment. They, they do have a little bit more time, though, right? I think that that's more of, like, a 42 hours instead of 24 hours. I, I, I could be wrong, but I think no. he was spending more time with her. No? No, it's, like, one, because it's, like, it's the morning. On the last day, maybe. It's not the morning of because he does a day of basic training and then the next day he goes out and then when he dies he wakes up not that day but the day before. So he does a whole day of basic training. Like so he sleeps in the <laughs> barracks. 
Yes. Yeah, yeah he does, for sure. Yeah. Okay. I don't actually remember but, that. But, but even so, I mean, that's definitely an issue that occurred to me too, Dave. But I think for me, one of the things that mitigated it somewhat is that because she has gone through the time loop experience, even though she doesn't remember yeah, that they have point. this yeah. long history, she knows they have this long history. So, you know, it's it's a bit more to me like the situation where somebody wakes up in the hospital and they've been in a coma and there's a person <laughs> sitting beside their bed who's like, I'm your husband. Like you, you don't remember them, but you you know that you have this history. So there's there's a little bit more of, of an anchor point, I think. Um, so it's, it's certainly not the same as as actually experiencing all of that, but the knowledge that 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 experience exists together out there somewhere, I think, does make it quite different from the Groundhog Day type of scenario. Yeah. No, that's that's a really good point. Yeah, let me just explain the premise of Edge of Tomorrow. So Tom Cruise is a military publicity guy and <laughs> through very very hard to believe circumstances <laughs> uh he he ends up being sent as cannon fodder in this beach invasion that goes horribly wrong against uh aliens and it turns out that the aliens can if they there's there's like special like leader ones and if one of the leader ones gets killed the main brain one has the ability to uh, rewind time and try a different strategy so that it doesn't lose any of its leader aliens. And so some, this is the big, and this is the biggest sort of issue I have with the movie is somehow by getting alien blood all over his face, he absorbs this power and takes it away from the aliens and ends up reliving this invasion over and over and over again and is finally able to, um, you know, get good at fighting and, um, you know, connect with, as, as Aaron was saying, a, another soldier who, who previously had this power. Um, and I, I really like this movie. I think I think the humor works really, really well. I think um, the leads are terrific in it. I have, as yeah. I said, I have some issues with the setup at the very beginning, and I have some issues with the third act. But it's definitely like a must-see movie as far as I'm concerned. It's a great one. And can I just say for the video game buffs and to tie it back to the video game panel, this one reminded me of the most of playing a video game. And specifically, it reminded me of playing Call of Duty World War II, <laughs> where you land on the beach <laughs> And you cannot not get killed a whole bunch of times landing on that <laughs> fucking beach. And you have to remember the border's going to go off here. And you got to duck behind the log there. And, and it just really reminded me of that, of, of him trying to sort of come up to speed um, and learn to survive this. I mean, it takes them however long just to get off the beach. Um, and that, so that was a lot of fun. Just, I just wanted to tie it back to the previous panel, but yeah, I have yeah. a question. Her name is Rita. Do you think yeah. that's a deliberate call? 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. That's I, all. That's I all think, I got to say. <laughs> I, I think that this movie is, it, it's kind of generic, but everything it does, it does so well. And the, uh, unlike some of the other movies, the plot is constantly moving forward despite the loop and his objectives yeah. are changing. Mm -hmm. So, so sometimes he's, he's trying to m move forward it, on basically the D day. And then sometimes he's, he's scrapping that idea and he's like, no, I need to train more. And then, so he's spending his time training and then sometimes he's, he's scrapping doing the D day all together. And, and instead he's trying to convince the officers that are above him that he knows all this stuff and he's reliving the day and that he, that, that the D day is, is going to fuck them. Um, so I thought that was really cool. You, you don't see that as much in groundhog day and the others. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it is a must see. I, I do have a little, like 
difficulty. Like what exactly do I love about it? But it's just kind of like everything just comes together. Um, the, there's a little like the generic kind of aliens, I guess, are a little weak. They could have maybe used a better design. And some of the uh, the power suits that they use are they could have looked a little cooler. But overall, I mean, the plot is the plot's really fun. It just keeps moving. Yeah. So, Blake, what do you think of Edge of Tomorrow? Uh, definitely an eight or eight point five out of ten, in my opinion. I uh, maybe I just have too much respect for or too much admiration for marketing but i kind of feel like the reason it feels more generic <laughs> than it really was is because the title i feel like if it had been called what it was originally based on all you need is kill it would feel like this like you know unique roguish project but it sounds like all of those like day after day after tomorrow or whatever like i, I feel like mm-hmm. that's what makes the movie most forgettable is the title uh because i think the movie yeah. itself is fascinating and then my biggest problem with the movie is is like says much more about me than an actual problem is I just, I hate the idea of like the time loop being able to impact me meaning or like anyone, like, you know, at least in Palm Springs or anything else, people, as we've discussed, have autonomy and in their own lives and, you know, or, you know, and are making their own decisions and, uh, and seemingly like are their lives are, unchanged by Phil Connors or Andy Samberg. But in this, like wars are won and lost based on this thing that you have no control over. You can't prepare for. Like I, I just, again, like I, this is like, it bothers you're saying you, you, you find the movie uncomfortable to watch because the concept irritates you if it were real or something like that. Yeah. Something like that. Like, I think it's just like, I wouldn't criticize it for its storytelling because I think it's done well. I just don't like, those I don't like thinking about that kind of thing. Like in you know they yeah. I, I love how they, they hang a lantern on it too. They're like, do not kill those because it'll reset. Like you can't you can't kill this certain type of the monster or the, the aliens because then you basically have undone yourself unknowingly, which is really cool. Like you you created a loop for them to go back and then to kill you. Yeah. Right. That's why I think That's from cool. a storytelling perspective it's awesome. I just think that yeah. from like a, like it's like one of those things where like if, if you know if if one of the three of you were going back in time for your own unique adventure and somehow it makes me no longer like be with my wife like I don't like that because I had no like there's nothing I could do to stop it but like you could somehow your butterfly effect is going to like change my life and this sort of just brings that idea very much to the center but of like this technology but it's realistic, is able to isn't it like it, it, leaving aside the time travel aspect of it. These things that happen in far-flung places that don't seem Good point. like they directly impact our world, they definitely do. And I mean, you could sort of make a stretchy argument that killing an alpha is like killing a senior terrorist. All you're doing is making more terrorists. <laughs> like, it just the, the knock-on effects of what you're doing, um, whether, you, you know, in some of these... You go back in history of assassinating heads of state as a classic example, where you think you're taking out the enemy, but in taking out, quote unquote, the enemy, all you're doing is empowering the enemy and building its foundation until it's something that's orders of magnitude stronger than what you just took out. I think that's an excellent comparison and probably touches on why I'm uncomfortable. Because, like, I I, I was very clear to make to say, like, I don't think it's bad as a storytelling. Like, I think the storytelling is good. It just is like, wow, that really sucks. I love how Edge of Tomorrow broke Blake. (laughs) 
Well, but, but there are there are some like even thinking back on it now, there are so many just great moments in this movie. I'm just going to mention quickly. So the moment where Rita wants to take off in the helicopter, and is it William is saying like, no, let's just hang out, have a cup of coffee, and he's like, we've been here a thousand times. There's you you die no matter what Cage. we do here. What's well, William Cage? Is his name? I think is it William Cage? Yeah. Anyways, so. Cage. Sorry. Um, and um. Yeah, he's like, you die no matter what we do here. And it's like this really like sensitive, um, sort of melancholy scene in this otherwise, you know, really like action packed movie. And then I just love the moment where they, um, they're, they're sort of browbeating the general to try to get him to believe them. And, and at, at a certain point, he's just like, okay, what do you want me to do? And they kind of look at each other and they're like, I don't know. We've never gotten this far before. Uh, I just, I just love that moment. But, but so, but so, my problem with the third act, though, I'll explain, is that I feel. Oh, and I also love the moment where he wakes up in the hospital and sees that he's gotten a blood transfusion, and it's therefore no longer has the ability to um to go back, you know, to do this time loop thing. And I just remember when I saw this in the theater, just at that moment, I just literally out loud, I was like, "Oh shit!" You know, it was really like, I was really into it. Um, but then the problem I have with the third act is then like all the stuff they do is at least as improbable and adventurous as the stuff that they did when they could, you know, were fighting for every single inch on the beach over and over again, planning each step. But you're meant, you're, you're supposed to believe that they're doing it at all. Just this, you know, perfect the first time through and everything that the movie has set up to this point just makes, it just emphasizes how absurd all the theatrics are in this climax. And so I think the climax totally should have been way more of a like, um, zero dark 30, like completely realistic where they're just like being super careful and they're like, you know, totally aware that, you know, the, the slightest wrong move is going to result in their deaths rather than like, you know, shooting across, shooting them the plane across the, you know, fields and all this stuff where you're just like, come on, you know? So anyway, so, so, so I was sort of let down by the ending of this movie, but overall, um, you know, I, I just think it's a great time, but, um, I don't know. Yeah. Zach, what do you, what do you think about For that? Sure. Yeah. Um, I agree with you, but I also think that he, I, I got a sense that he was training and like now like her, He's like this sort of, they're both these certified badasses that it, maybe it's not as meticulous as literally duck one inch here and then jump one inch here. Like he's kind of doing those things because he's a badass, not necessarily because he's like meticulously planned out, uh, you know, an inch by inch battle when, so, when he's when he's doing so so the, the you would the say DA that thing. you would say that the third act worked for you or uh i mean it I, I, it worked okay like i do agree that it's just like it's kind of when when they're flying and like all the the spare characters that they brought on are just <laughs> all the dying. red shirts <laughs> I, yeah all the red shirts are just dropping like flies you're like okay, okay yeah and it's just like kind of eye rolly um, but I do like when they get to the the end and there is the blue uh, mimic and, you know, like that that thing that broke Blake is, is very interesting <laughs> to me. And they say that, you know, they're like, oh, oh you can't kill that. You just got to let it kill you. And it's like, man, that's fucked up. Like, right. that's crazy. But yeah, I, so it kind of it kind of works for me. <laughs> I agree. I, I, I feel like the reality is that. I I mean I've never 
been in battle, but the reality is that all of that is just going to be, you know, surviving a firefight like that is always going to be a cosmic alignment of, of tiny instincts and luck and all the rest of it. And it happens all the time. And, you know, it wouldn't be a very satisfying story if it didn't happen this time. <laughs> then everyone would just die and it would be the end. But so I, I didn't find that a particular stretch personally. I, I just, you know, it was kind of almost had to be that way that, that you, you experience this tension that they're going to die. But now that you've floated that zero dark 30 aspect of it, I, I'm totally sold on that. And I agree that would <laughs> for sure it. be a better ending than what it has. But you know, for what it was, I, I, I wasn't bothered too much by it. I wasn't bothered too much by it. And I was so enamored of all of the little details and particularly just shout out to Emily Blunt for her just fucking over it performance through the whole thing. <laughs> and just the, the, the casual way that she offs cage over and over. She's like, you're done. Uh, and you're done. Conversation <laughs> in the middle of a conversation. She's just like, shoot. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. I love it. And wasn't, she was like pregnant throughout this whole movie, I think. Really? Oh my God. Oh, yeah. For, yeah I, I think so. Yeah. That might explain why she's just over it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all right. This is going to get kind of nitpicky, but I'm going to just bring up some of my um, sort of objections to the concept of um, time loops. Um, I, I guess really to the objection of like the the assumption, I think in all of these movies that if you had a lot of time to practice something, you could achieve some superhuman level of mastery at it. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the reality is that most people could spend an infinite amount of time doing something and not get that good at it. Um, you know, like when, when it comes to something like playing the piano or uh, carving ice sculptures or things like that. I feel yeah. like, you know, yeah, well, what, what, what is actually the truth? That I, I sort of have an ongoing argument with one of my best friends about the good place and just the idea that like, I'm like, oh, I'd be very happy to be there forever. I would never want to leave it. Like, like as long as I could be with my wife and my cat. And he's like, no, it's infinity. You have to think about it that way. And truly in infinity, like you would get bored. And I feel like these are supposed to be infinity. So wouldn't at some point Phil Connors actually be able to become a perfect ice sculptor? Like, 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 I know, well, you know this see is it that many times, but, but isn't the idea that like you, like, wouldn't you actually really become the world's most proficient something if you did it every day for a million times? No, I, well, I don't think so. I mean, like I like shot baskets for hours every day for like 20 <laughs> years and I'm still bad at it. I mean, like, you know, there's just like certain things like you're, you do you, need some talent. Yeah. There, there's, there's like more than time. It seems to me anyway. Like, would he have. Would he have the muscle memory? Well, that's the next thing I was going to bring. Then, yeah. then could he just get jacked and like work out? And would that like help him in certain ways? I don't know. But let's assume he called his hobbies based on what he already had a small affinity for. Like we saw him learn three things. We saw him learn to speak some French. We saw him uh, learn to play the piano. <laughs> Aaron's, Aaron's and, being snotty now about his the quality uh, <laughs> of his French. <laughs> I'm not being snotty about the quality of his French. Actually, it was fine. And it was funny learning that he was at the Sauvon after that. But no, I'm not being snotty about that. We heard him say one sentence. So he, you know, we, we never, <laughs> right. we, we don't really know if he spoke French. We can only take his word for it because he just said the one sentence. And yeah. then she said, you speak French. He said, <laughs> so, I mean, maybe. Let's put that in the maybe pile. But so he he did this that. This is kind of he did the ice sculpting and did the piano. So there's a hundred thousand things he could have learned. Can we just assume he 
decided to learn the ones that he had. Maybe he tried to play the saxophone first and he just really fucking sucked. And so he decided to take, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? You can think your way around it, Dave, if you want to, (laughs) you have to want to. Yeah. I'm just I'm just bringing this I'm just bringing this up because like I, I I just don't think I mean it just seems to me an implicit assumption in all these movies is that like infinite amount of time to practice something equals as I said like superhuman level of mastery and I just don't think that's how it works in in reality. This is kind of breaking me like like <laughs> Blake was broken. Like, are you saying that no ma- no matter how hard I try, I'm never gonna kickflip? Dave? like even if i got in a time loop i i'm never gonna be good at skateboarding what? <laughs> well but i also i wanted to mention because you know zach brought up muscle memory and i don't i i think the it's it's hard to say like physiologically what would be happening in these time loops but i assume that your muscles wouldn't change from day to day like, I, would so assume, like, I think that's like i feel like that's for certain that you because nothing you do one day would impact the other like, well what what is that playing like a tattoo piano, you, the tattoo doesn't stay so why would you well, well sure but playing piano is a, a significant amount of that is muscle memory right yeah so many of the things that you do is like a muscle memory but i guess that is in your brain right a lot of it's just memory memory like a lot of it a lot of it and i'll, I'll tell you what exactly i mean by that so i used to play the flute quite seriously and I can still play the flute in my head, but I can't play it with my body. And what I mean by that is I no longer have – it takes an enormous amount of air. It takes an enormous amount of muscle control around the face. It takes quite a lot to, to just hold the thing up horizontal for a long time. I can't do any of that. But my fingers still remember all the little things. And that's in my brain for sure. Well, well, but this is the thing with Cage or William learning all the combat, because this is my understanding is that combat skills are largely muscle memory, because when you're in combat, you're getting hit by so much adrenaline that you can't really think that well. And you have to have trained over and over and over and over again that your body basically knows what to do without your brain directing things that, you know, specifically. And so if you can't rely on muscle memory, it's a little hard for me to believe that you could develop really that good combat reflexes especially if you're not like working at, you know if you're not doing any physical training I think your synapses rewire i literally well, think your synapses rewire but then it would but would it be rewiring if you're getting a reset from well, the that's day an interesting before point, yeah. that's like <laughs> that's the thing that's breaking me right now but I, th- I think that aaron's i like what aaron said earlier about call of duty like i feel like that's kind of what it's supposed to be like and if you know where the enemies are supposed to be the more you play it you're getting better but your characters like physically you know their and abilities not, are not changing. no you're 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 not getting better at call of duty if you're yes, memorizing you where spawn points are it's both you're not it's both. i mean it's, if, both. it's both. well it, it but you're not getting better at the action of shooting head well you okay so you might be yeah, right you are. you're getting, you're getting if you're getting better time. at shooting like the actual aiming like that's muscle memory. But if you're just memorizing spawn points and you know, okay, I know where to jump here. I know where to duck here. That's like, There's, that's different. And so okay. that would be the thing that you retain versus getting the headshots, which that would be the thing that resets. Right. But I think that's what Dave's saying. There's a difference saying, between knowing know. where they're going to spawn and anticipating where a sniper would be. Exactly. And the second one is experience. And you definitely get better at that over time. No question about it. All right. The other issue I wanted to bring up is that these movies seem to have, and this is related, but seem to have a sort of dualist assumption, right, of the separation between the soul and the body. 
Whereas as a total philosophical materialist, I don't buy that. And so then the issue, <laughs> then the issue is like, wait, in order for you to have memories, your body has to have physically changed, right? Because all your memories are electrochemical signals in your brain. So if your brain can physically change from day to day, why can't any other part of your body change? Like your muscles or whatever. But that, right? That's why I liked Aaron's video game thing. Because that is like a video game, right? Where it's basically restarting a simulation every day, but you're outside of the simulation controlling the simulation. I mean, you definitely, Dave, I think you're right. You definitely have to accept as a fundamental assumption that your consciousness and your memories are separate from your physical form. Without or, that, it doesn't work. Or like a brain is being teleported and like the copy of what's chemically in the brain oh, at the a, end of the day the is being reset. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know the those the actual physical copy of that is being transposed into you know six o'clock in the morning yeah or no or phil connor's is a soldier like lying on a gurney plugged into a simulation right and then it all makes sense yeah it's the source code (laughs) is the cloud it's the consciousness cloud can i just ask a question how come the short-term memories are in the cloud but the long-term memories aren't in the cloud was that are we just meant to just not ask that question Sorry to jump back to source code. No, explain that again. Oh, why he doesn't remember? Well, so like how he died. You get the hand wavy explanations about what source code is. You get the thing about how after a certain certain period after death, um, you know the the sort of uh, there's still electromagnetic activity and it's like the aura of a light bulb and there's eight seconds and it's precisely eight seconds, which is amazing, of short term memory. That is stored in the cloud. No, it's, they say, they say eight minutes, right? don't they, in the movie? Sorry, Just, eight minutes. My bad. Yeah. Eight seconds. <laughs> eight seconds is. The, um, I grew up in a movie? rodeo town, and eight seconds yeah. is how long you have to hang on to the bull. Anyway, <laughs> so it's fine. Um, eight minutes of, of short term memory. But they don't explain why. Like, if you would think anything was going to be stored in the cloud, and I'm sorry to put it in those terms, but I just it's just convenient. Wouldn't it be long term memory? Yeah, I saw it as more of like an advertisement for Amazon Cloud because you want more storage to upgrade <laughs> to do long-term memory as opposed to just the eight minutes you're stuck with. Yeah. Or eight seconds if you're a bull rider. Yeah. <laughs> I think we're thinking way harder than the writers did that got their script blacklisted. That's why they pay us the big bucks, Zach. <laughs> <laughs> That that what eight cents a word prorates the big bucks. <laughs> yeah, I, I certainly you know, I would that that's certainly my impression that I've thought about this harder than than the source code movie did. Um, all right, but we're pretty much out of time. Um, I guess I'll just. Does anyone have any uh, any other um, any thoughts about any of these movies that they've been wanting to say and, and didn't get a chance to? Yeah, I have one question for the group. Um, I'd be curious to get your guys' opinions. Uh, I think we all seem to love Palm Springs. Um, and, and like at the end, after she, she explodes them and, you know, you're unsure whether they're going to end up together or whether they're just dead or whatever, there's like a really long black screen. And I, for a second, I thought, oh, that's it. That's the movie. And I was wondering what you guys would have thought of the movie if it had ended that way, where you don't get a resolution to whether this worked or not, or, or seemingly it, maybe it didn't work if, if you, all you get is a black screen. Hmm. I think I would have been fine with it. Honestly. Yeah. I th- 
I, I would have liked that. It's not as feel good. Right. <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah. I, I, I mean, like I like, said, I, yeah, I, I would have preferred that from a, from source code because it was just like, look at how smart we are versus Palm Springs. Wasn't like a, Hey, I'm so smart. It's we're going to leave this open ended up to you. So I don't know. Maybe I would not have preferred that. Maybe it would have like been yeah. a little like, man, that, that's kind of dark. <laughs> or maybe the goat comes out of the cave somewhere else entirely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because, yeah, I feel like like I tend to like dark endings, but there's just like a certain kind of dark ending. Like it has to be built up to in the right way. And you can't take a story, in my opinion, that's sort of building up to a a not dark ending and just like slap a dark ending on. I, I find that very irritating. And it, it's actually I read like the original ending of um, Happy Death Day was there was a scene at the end where after she survived and everything, somehow the wife of the professor that she's sleeping with like comes in and like kills her in the um, hospital or something. And they showed that to test audiences. And it was just like uniformly like test audience like hated that ending, which I, I, I understand why. And so like, you know, much as I like dark endings, like it just, it has to be part of the... Oh, it has I, to be- I, I saw it less as dark and more as open-ended. Like cause he- you're basically getting like Andy Samberg's conclusion is that he is scared but he'd rather risk dying with her than not have her and that was like sort of the point of like phil connor's being like i'm not going to try to you know weasel my way out of this i'm just going to accept it and enjoy it and having it basically end that way there's no, but happiness yeah, to it but i feel like the dark screen where you don't know whether they survived or not would have been a good ending for source code uh mm-hmm. i feel like for palm springs just like a you know i actually now i don't remember exactly what happened at the end before we got oh, to that? They're like in the pool. Oh, oh, oh right. They're at the pool. They're like, the I guess they come back home. November 10th. No, no. <laughs> I, I, I think in a movie, I think in like a romantic comedy, like I, I, I don't want just like a really sort of yeah. cynical pull the rug out from under you kind of ending. In for in most cases, makes sense. Or in this case, at any rate. I think it definitely like I probably personally would have been fine with it, but I think you're right, Dave. That it, it in. Insofar as it's adhering to the general beats of a rom-com, you can't really do that. Yeah. There are certain expectations for resolution that, I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily have to be happily ever after, but it at least has to be, it's possible that there will be a happily ever after. Yeah. But otherwise, yeah. Like, it's a different kind of movie. I was totally expecting it to end with the possible happily ever after thing where it's like, they both kind of forget, or one of them forgets, but then they meet, and you know, like, oh, well, they've met each other, and it could happen, it's probably going to happen. So I, I at least felt mm-hmm. satisfied that they both remembered what had happened, they were both out of this loop. I mean, I was very kind happy of, with the ending. Kind of like uh, Edge of Tomorrow, and, and exactly. speaking of, like, last-minute things to say, one of the things I really did appreciate about Edge of Tomorrow is that they resisted the temptation to go too far down the path of a romantic relationship between their leads. I liked that, I mean... There, I still thought there, they went too far, though. I... I there was there was a there was a kiss, but I almost felt like, for me, it, it was more of a an intimacy thing than a romance thing. If I can split a hair, um, and I could have possibly done without any of it, but I did appreciate that they resisted the temptation because I guarantee the temptation was huge to take it further down that path. And of all yeah. of these movies, it's the only one where it's not a central part of the plot, and I did appreciate that. I just kind of feel like if you were to watch a version of that where it's all from Emily Blunt's point of view, when it got to the point where she's kissing him, you'd be like, why is she kissing this guy? Like, 
you know he's like weird and like i don't know whatever but, um, but it's not a super romantic kiss i don't know anyway we we could like it we could we'll have to about. yeah we'll have to save it for the next panel and we are uh we're, we're talking about doing a a follow-up because um you know uh when I first, you know, oh, and actually, I have to thank my cousin Ross for suggesting this uh, this topic, and um, I was like, oh, that's a good idea. And initially, I could only come up with, you know, like maybe four movies that fit the thing, but then it turned out there were enough that, uh, you know, we we had to just limit it to five, and, and maybe we can come back to some of the other ones. Um, but uh, if anyone doesn't want to wait, some other ones to maybe check out are Triangle, two thousand nine, Happy Death Day to You, the TV show Russian Doll we've mentioned. Um, there was actually, if you Google, I found a, a YouTube video that, that listed a whole bunch of other ones that I, I hadn't heard of either. And then there's a bunch of TV episodes so like Star Trek. And there's also some video games. Uh, Outer Wilds is one that's recent. Um, it's kind of like a time loop where you're uh, exploring planets. And there's the classic Majora's Mask, which neither mm. of those games am I, uh, yeah, I about too big Majora's of a fan Mask. of. Um, I just, I think playing time loops is not nearly as fun as watching them. Um, and then recently, uh, I read a silver surfer issue by Dan slot, uh, from 2014. It's issue 11. It is a time loop that deals with silver surfer, uh, trying to find a planet for these refugees. That's interesting in the way it's laid out. Um, so check that out if you're interested in time loop comic books. Yeah, and I'll also just mention that there is a sequel to um, uh, Edge of Tomorrow. The title's like so bland, I can never remember it. Um, in production or in development, I should say, um, called Live, Die, Repeat, and Repeat. Uh, so, <laughs> really? That's, that's not a the joke. best they could come up with? <laughs> well, it's, it's weird because like, I don't like any of the, t- you know, like, I agree that all you need, all you need is kill is the title of the original graphic novel. I don't think it fits the tone of this movie. Uh, I edge of tomorrow is so forgettable. I can never even remember it. Um, and then live die repeat, which is how they've kind of rebranded it. I don't really like that much either. I, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's a little bit better, but it still like sounds kind of dumb to me. So this is, I mean, maybe it's a testament to this movie that it's so hard to come up with a title that captures its essence. Uh, you know, it just seems to be a, an ongoing issue. Well, I hope uh, Tom Cruise and Emily Blunt come back because I th- I think they were like a big part of why that movie was so awesome. No, I think it said that they're both either signed on or interested. I'd have to go back, cool. and look, but I'm pretty I'm pretty sure they they're both kind of on board. Um, yeah, we are we are at a time. I did actually, you know, Blake earlier brought up this issue of you know if you could choose to stay in a time loop, would you? I think that's a really interesting conversation. So I guess I'll just, I'll just mention that and maybe uh, we can come, if we do this again, we can come back to that question. Um, but I, th- I think we need to wrap this one up. Um, so how about let's get some uh, final thoughts from everyone on this whole experience of watching these time loop movies. Um, so Blake, final thoughts. I agree with what Aaron said earlier. This is the best batch of movies we watched, which, you know, some degrees because we watched bad video game movies. So maybe that's not surprising. Well, it's but. actually funny, I guess, is that the lowest rated of these is 71%, which I think is higher than any of the video game movies that we watch. It so. might be higher than all the video game movies put together. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, no, uh, the look, yeah, 
Groundhog Day is a top five all-time movie. Palm Springs, I just saw a few hours ago, but it's probably my favorite movie I've seen all, you know, in like a year. So great batch of movies. So there's something to this conceit. And um, I guess, uh, yeah, I recommend, I'd recommend every movie on this list except for Source Code. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Aaron, final thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I agree with Blake. I think it, it, it's no accident that this was a great batch of movies. And I think it's because the time loop is such a rich device. It's, it's really flexible in the sense that you can, it, it, it makes for great comedy, great action, great horror, at least potentially. Um, but also it poses a lot of philosophical questions without necessarily yeah. meaning to, or certainly without even like, certainly without being in, in your face about it. And whether they're romantic comedies or action adventure or whatever, they're fundamentally, they're posing interesting questions about the choices you make and what kind of person you want to be and the nature of happiness. And you kind of can't help reflecting on these issues as you watch these movies. And I think that gives them this extra dimension that's really satisfying. Yeah. How about Zach? Final thought? Sure. I was uh, pretty critical about some of these movies, but I would recommend all of them. And I guess kind of even source code if, if you're bored one day, um, just so you can look at it. I mean, it has a great premise. Um, uh, but it, just so you can compare it to these other movies, this is a great batch of movies that you should, you could like knock out in a weekend. They're not that long. Most of these movies are an hour and a half. So they're great, especially when you're, you know, it's 2020 and it's like COVID season and you're just trapped inside all day. Like Groundhog Day. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> like Groundhog Day. Yeah. So check them out, watch them. And, and, Definitely watch Russian Doll because that is just as good as any of these, maybe even better. And hopefully we'll come back with another episode and talk about it because I love that show. Yeah. And actually, just while it's on my mind, um, something to come back to is also how, yeah, how um, the time loop movies interact or intersect uh, thematically with COVID and sort of being trapped and this being trapped, just doing the same thing over and over again and not being able to go anywhere else. And um, I love the line in Groundhog Day where... Bill Murray says to the the townies, he's like, you know, what would yeah. you do if you were trapped in the same place and you were just doing the same thing every day? Nothing you did matters. And and the guy says, well, that pretty much sums it up for me. Um, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> totally. yeah, that's so, yeah, I, I, we definitely we definitely need to do another panel on this so we can come back to all this stuff. So um, I'll just say, um, yeah, definitely. Um, if you haven't seen Groundhog Day for some reason, watch it. It's an all time classic. And definitely watch Palm Springs. I think, you know, since it's on Hulu, I don't, I think probably a lot of people haven't seen it or wouldn't see it, but it's, you, you gotta search it out. It, it takes the Groundhog Day formula and just puts a really, I think a really brilliant spin on it and is super funny and fun and, and everything. And it just shows, you know, there's still a lot of life left in this time loop concept and still a lot of, um, you know, stories that haven't been told and territory that hasn't been explored. So yeah, I, I really, really give that a strong, strong recommendation. Palm Springs. Um, but yeah, so I think we're going to have to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Aaron Lindsay, Zach Chapman, and Blake J. Harris. So thanks everyone so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Dave. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Aaron Lindsay, Zach Chapman, and Blake J. Harris for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. 
So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.